0: Every season is spooky season in our book, so settle in and prepare
1: to be shut up. You are listening to Shook, a comedic podcast about all things paranormal and unexplained.
0: Hey friends, Happy New Year. I'm Amanda. And I'm Santa. Fun
1: fact, we finally have some new content up on the Patreon, so come on.
0: We do, we do, we do. Okay, so... Last year, at some point, it was probably in the summertime, I teased that I would share an embarrassing ghost story that happened to me at the East Bay Inn in Savannah, Georgia, and I really went back and forth for a while about whether or not I wanted to actually put it out there, because it's just like, I don't know, kind of TMI, but really it's not that deep. But yeah, the story is now on Patreon for your viewing and listening pleasure, so go on and watch it. And uh, please comment. (laughs) And let me know if you think that it actually was related to a ghost. But um, basically, the story was hashtag no boundaries.
1: No boundaries were had. All boundaries were crossed. For those of you who aren't a patron, uh, come on and become a patron so you can see it. For those of you who are a patron, I want to shout some of y'all out right now. So, first of all, Katya... Yeah. Cassandra, Taylor, Geo, Haley, Andy,
0: Erin, Catherine, and Emily. Yes, thanks, guys. I uh, also want to welcome our other new patrons Samantha, Billy, Elizabeth, Jessica, Gretchen, Casey, and Mallory. Thank you all for joining our Patreon. Whether you are a free or paid member, we are so happy to have you there. And honestly, that's where you can get all the tea. We've got some exclusive content on there. Patrons get a shout out on air. Uh, We're going to be rolling out friendship bracelets very soon. Uh, You get a free sticker for certain tiers. And I'm going to be adding more tiers to the Patreon for even more exciting content. But that will be revealed at a later date. So stay tuned on that front. I don't know, Santa, do we tell them? I guess we have an announcement to make, but should we say that for the end?
1: Yeah, we do have a really kind of big announcement. It's kind of a big deal for us, and we really want to share that with you guys. So stay tuned later on in the episode, and we will reveal what that exciting news is.
0: Sure will, and if you are already a patron, you already know what's fixing to go down. So stay tuned. I guess what we can do now is share what this episode is going to be since this is our first episode of the year happy new year we thought it might be fun to go through take a look back honestly it wasn't that fun because it's so cringe to watch yourself back on camera but to go back and watch older episodes and santa and i decided on our two favorite stories that we did and two favorite stories the other person had so We'll just kick it off. Um, We're going to have some commentary here and there, but this is a a good jumping off point for people who are new to the podcast. This is probably a good episode to start with so you can get a feel for what we're like. It's kind of like a compilation, but we're going to add some extra stuff into it. Plus, we have that special announcement, so you definitely don't want to skip through this one.
1: Yeah, this is a flashback episode. For those listening or watching, please... Let us know what your favorite moments were and let us know, you know, what you want to see more of in 2024. That being said, Amanda, which one of my 2023 stories had you the most shook?
0: Santa, without a doubt, Ava T. Matardo, which was the story that you covered in our episode, The Proof is in the Bunny Rabbit. I was literally flabbergasted by that whole thing. I had never heard of this woman before. Somehow I mentioned even in that video that I love snakes. I figured I would have heard of that story by now, but I hadn't. It was a front row experience of something I ain't seen before. So yeah, it was an amazing story. So with that, roll the tape.
1: Hunty, Mm -hmm. have you ever heard the name Ava Tima Tardo? I can't say that I have. Well, neither did I until very recently, but Ava T. Matardo was a dime museum performer during the turn of the 19th century. Just so everyone knows, dime museums basically existed as cheap, lowbrow entertainment for the working class, and they showcased sideshows, medical specimens, and other oddities like wax figures. They would have sword swallowers and magic shows and any kind of like little freak show type situation. And they had these dime museums in big cities like New York City, Chicago, Baltimore, Cincinnati. These performers would kind of go around to the different ones. They would call it doing the dime museum circuit. And so Eva T. was considered one of the probably coolest and most unexplained for like how she was able to do her act you can kind of pick apart when you're watching something like that like oh yeah. that's how they might have done the trick and you have your idea but it's like no so eva Timatardo was known for enduring poisonous snake bites literal crucifixion yes Pins and needles being pushed through her skin, like even her cheek, her neck, different body parts, and just other shocking injuries. She just would do anything that looked painful or that that would be very painful to anyone. And she did all of this without any expression of pain. In fact, she remained so unbothered during these acts that she would just be like humming out loud. Like she would just be like, "Mm -hmm -hmm -hmm," while somebody's hammering like an iron spike through her hand. Oh my God. It wasn't even that she got pleasure out of it either. It was just, she allegedly, I don't even want to say, I don't even want to say allegedly because it's actually, this has been proven. She could not feel the pain. What? Yeah. She physically could not feel the pain. It's crazy, but I'll, I'll get... I'll get back to that in a second because I'm getting off the timeline. So the New York Times called her the strangest woman in the world. And a typical routine for her at these dime museums and lecture halls and places where she would perform would start with her sticking her hand into a box full of cobras and rattlesnakes until one or more of them bit onto her hand. And then she would take her hand out and reveal the snake that is just like latched onto her hand or her arm. It's and an art. She's actively being bitten by poisonous snakes, like on the oh regular. God. Most people, anybody that got bit like that would die. Right. Or they definitely couldn't stand, they couldn't withstand doing that on a regular basis. Like she did for the shows. Observers say that she didn't even bleed from the snake bites and only retained tiny blue puncture marks from the fresh bites. So like you could see the imprint of where their teeth were, but there was no like bloodiness or anything. In fact, in all the other things that she did in the act, the pins being pushed into her body, like you never saw blood. That is so weird. A doctor at a show said that the snake bites would have killed 20 men, but she was totally unharmed it's, it seems like an impossible thing that someone could do this. And she was doing it in full view of the audience. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like a magic trick where someone's doing something behind a curtain or there's something covering she's out here on display. And also I had um, highlighted some passages and this is more about like Houdini's connection with her above all. People came to see the beautiful Cuban Evatima Tardo entice a rattlesnake to flare up and sink its fangs into her milky arms and shoulders. Even Houdini was shaken when, after Evatima wrenched the serpent from her arm, a physician injected its poison into a rabbit, which instantly went into convulsions and died in great agony, (gasps) Grizzly proof that the snake queen was no faker. That is one, like, kind of fucked up thing about her act is that they would kill an animal in the process just to prove that this was a poisonous snake that bit her every time.
0: Okay, that's the, that's the proof right there. The yeah. proof is in the the bunny rabbit. Not yeah. the pudding, but the bunny rabbit. <laughs> Damn. Yeah,
1: and that's how, like, fucked up these shows were, too. They just, they just did some crazy shit back then. It
0: was the Wild Wild West. So
1: after the snake bite, Segment of her routine, she would get up onto a cross. So she would have doctors do like all of the harm that she was basically doing to herself for probably two reasons. One, because she was actively being studied by these doctors as to like what is going on. She was actively being studied and tested, and they're trying to figure out what is this anomaly. And two, they probably knew how to not pierce an artery that could kill her, or they probably knew how to not pierce an organ. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So she would have a doctor hammer an iron spike through her hand. What? Literal crucifixion. And she would also have the doctors push pins through her body, even through her tongue, So a newspaper reported that her wounds were white and gelatinous, not bloody. And she said she felt no pain at all, and that snake venom felt like whiskey. Like the sensation that it gave her body.
0: That's crazy. So white and gelatinous, so like coagulated white blood cells? There's like some really weird theories about that. Was this truly fully on display? There was no... I'm putting my hand in a bag where there are snakes. Like, people physically saw the fangs go into yeah. her flesh.
1: Well, she put it, her hand in the box first just to get the snakes to bite her. And then she pulled her hand out, revealing the full bite. And the snake wrapped around her arm. Oh, my gosh. Like, so, the, so when she pulled her hand out, the snake was still latched on with the bite. That is insane. She is like just an anomaly. She herself is an anomaly (laughs) of nature. It's crazy. Like, and she was so pretty too. I'm sure the sexual tension was high when she was doing her act. It's giving like 50 shades. She really did kind of like sexualize it a little bit. Like as far as Mm -hmm. like making it seem like she liked it, but really at the end of the day, she just couldn't
0: even feel it. (laughs) She couldn't feel anything. Maybe it she's anyway. born with it. <laughs> maybe she's born with it. Maybe she's paralyzed. I don't know. Like, how do you not feel two fangs pierce your skin? That's crazy. There is a little more explanation as to
1: maybe what this could be. So, I'd said before that she said she felt no pain and that snake venom felt like whiskey in her veins. So she could feel that, I guess. She claimed to be able to stop her own circulation and dislocate her own neck as well. And that is the thing that, the stopping her own blood circulation, that is the thing that had Harry Houdini, like, obsessed for a hot minute. As we've maybe talked about before, he would go around and, like, figure out how other people did their tricks, right? And he would adopt some of their ways of doing things into his his way of doing things, and he just he learned from everyone. He was hoping to learn how she did her shit. Yeah, he probably Especially, had a crush on her, too. I'm sure he did. Allegedly, there was nothing romantic that ever happened between them, but he thought she was the coolest thing. So a little backstory about Evatima. So she was born in Trinidad in the 1870s, And when she was five years old, she was bitten by a large cobra. Oh. It's giving Spider-Man. Cobra girl, (laughs) cobra girl does whatever a cobra girl does. I feel like she was literally like transferred power from this fucking cobra, honestly. When she got bitten when she was five by the cobra, her parents were like scared to death that she was going to die. Because, you know, back then children were dying left and right all the time just from (laughs) tripping and falling or getting the stuffy nose. They're gone. You're out. So she didn't die as her parents had feared, but instead slept for 30 hours and was fine. Someone said, I don't remember who the source was, but someone said that the snake bite was like a sleeping potion for her because all she did was sleep for 30 hours straight and woke up and was like, I'm back. She sustained other poisonous reptile bites while growing up. And those had no effect on her either. She was just out here getting hurt. And also, like, the fact that she couldn't feel stuff probably made her susceptible to the bites. Because, like, if something did bite her, she was just, I don't know, probably not even aware of it, really, at first.
0: This is the most bizarre story I've ever heard already.
1: I know. I know it's crazy. I'm obsessed with her. I'm literally fucking obsessed with her. Like, now that I know about her... What a badass queen. She, (laughs) yeah, literally, we have no choice but to stand. So another quote from Ava Tima pertaining to her condition. She said, I never had a pain in my life. I don't know what ache is. I'm always happy, never sad. Must be nice. She's never had pain, emotional or physical. In her whole life was just kind of like spectacle and excitement. So she didn't really have to suffer that much, you know? And since she couldn't feel the physical pain, she literally did not have to suffer. She actually claimed to have no sense of touch whatsoever and relied heavily on her other senses to navigate life. She said she could feel the venom running through her veins. So maybe like somewhere inside she can feel something
0: Right. But just, like,
1: can she not feel if someone is tapping her? What about going to pound town? That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, when I found this out, I was like, no, but, like, what if she can't feel any of that either? Aww. No. Because that would be, Nar. like, a a very ironic thing. So she started attracting attention from the medical world at age 10 during a trip to the U.S. And then she went to England and other areas of Europe as well, giving exhibitions to physicians and participated in experiments um, so that people could kind of poke and prod and see if they could figure out what the fuck was going on with this little girl that survived the fucking snake bite. In 1897, she began performing at Cole and Middleton's Dime Museum in Chicago. And that is where she met Harry Houdini. And this is a quote from Harry Houdini about Ivatima. For the simple reason that I worked within 12 feet from her." my statement that there was absolutely no fake attached to her startling performance can be taken in all seriousness. There was no bells and whistles, smoke and mirrors, nothing about it. Damn. She just got a five-star review. Got a five-star review from Harry Houdini himself. (laughs) Harry Houdini did have a theory about how she did her tricks. So After years of investigation, I've come to the belief that this immunity was the result of an absolutely empty stomach into which a large quantity of milk was taken shortly after the wound was inflicted. It doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. He's saying like after the snake bites, she would have drank a bunch of milk and then got on the cross, but she was like out there in front of everybody. There was no time for her to be loading up on the milk. What the fuck does milk have to do with... right
0: what's milk got to do with
1: it (laughs) what is the correlation because (laughs) i think because the press was reporting on her wounds being milky white yeah i think his brain was just like must have something to do with milk that milk theory harry houdini do better (laughs) silly so doctors had other theories that actually are grounded in something that Sounds like it could be possible. So in Minneapolis, doctors thought that she was using a combination of an anesthetic and willpower, but then ultimately said there was no anesthetic on earth strong enough for her to be able to withstand all of that, especially the, like, the iron spike stuff through the hand, like, come on now. Yeah. Others thought she was under hypnosis, which potentially- Dr. William J. Burns, who examined her in Minneapolis, gave the most reasonable explanation for her gifts. Miss Tardo is certainly what she claims to be, a woman without the sense of feeling. I attribute her present anomalous condition to the cobra bite she received when a little girl. That bite paralyzed the sensory nerves and inoculated her nervous system with the poison.
0: That makes sense. If I'm not mistaken, cobras do have a neurotoxin venom. That makes
1: way more sense than anything else. Yeah. And another s- doctor also suggested that the snake bite had acted as some type of vaccine, like a smallpox vaccine would. Right. And so, therefore, she's like immune to the snake bite. So, that would explain the immunity to the venom, and that would explain the sensory Yeah, that
0: tracks actually. That makes a lot of sense. It is still a mystery
1: though, how she could control her blood circulation. Like how she was able to control that. Because she did claim, she did claim to be able to do that and it's it seemed evident that she was able to do that because she wasn't producing blood at the wound sites. That is, yeah. I don't I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Yeah, it's crazy. So, yeah, the newspapers were convinced that she was otherworldly or even immortal. She, of course, attracted many admirers. <sighs> and this is where I have to say, fuck the patriarchy. One day in May of 1905, a railroad special agent named Thomas McCall, who was obsessed with Avatima, received a fortune teller reading. That another man stood in the way of them being together. Drunk and filled with rage, McCall showed up to a saloon where Ava Tima was drinking and having a good time with the saloon's proprietor, Hal B. Williamson. I believe they were dating or they were together. McCall shot Ava Tima and Williamson and killed himself five hours later. Uh It's just... Oh my god. It pisses me off so much. I could cry. Yeah. I could cry thinking about it because the fucking irony that, like, she could withstand any amount of pain. He shot her in the heart, though. There was no way she could survive that.
0: That is that is brutal. And she was only 34. Oh, my God.
1: She had a lot of years ahead of her to, like, still keep trying to figure out what
0: was going yeah. on
1: with her to still keep working with the doctors as science advanced and stuff, she could have probably figured out a lot more of what was going on.
0: Wait, okay, so she got shot, like, was it point blank? Was it from behind? Was it at a distance? That was not clear.
1: But it it just said that she was shot in the heart while she was just trying to relax for once. so sad. We may never see someone with, like, her strange abilities ever again. You know what I mean? Yeah, We may never have answers, true answers. All we have are theories. We may never know, like, really what that was. And could it have been something otherworldly? Guess we'll never know. Damn. And now we'll never know because a fucking man. It's funny how a man has to, like, ruin everything all the time. He was not entitled to her. No. But that fortune teller is messy for telling him... That another man stood in the way. She's messy. There's blood on her hands. I'm sorry, but there is. Okay, that is a little trifling, I-, I have to say. And if she was any kind of intuitive, medium, clairvoyant, anything, she could probably pick up his chaotic and dangerous energy and to give him that information. Bitch. Yeah, I am it. I'm just blaming everybody because I, I don't know. This is just very shitty. She still had more shit to do.
0: That is very frustrating. I was so excited learning about all of the shit she did, and that's all she got to do.
1: Yeah. Just, it's
0: like, it's like
1: there was so much, she did so much cool shit, and she was such a fucking badass, and she seemed, like, bulletproof, literally, and Damn. it's like, it was just so stunted. She was the one that everybody wanted to see, and... Everybody was trying to figure out, how can we be a dupe? How can we dupe Evatima? You can't. Right. Thing is, you can't. Everyone else, you're out. Because <laughs> anybody else who would try to duplicate it, it would be like, you're actually getting hurt and pretending that you're not hurt. She actually couldn't feel it.
0: Right. The storm of circumstances that had to have occurred. People would
1: die in the process of trying to duplicate her.
0: You yeah. can't. Here's the thing, Santa. I had a really hard time watching back my own stories. It was just super cringe to me, but I was fully enthralled re-watching your take on Ava Tima It was so supremely done. All the details. Not only was this story jam-packed with detail, nostalgia for a time that I never saw with my own eyes, and also a very shocking and tragic ending. It broke my heart. I couldn't, I couldn't believe how it ended. I did not think you were going to end it that way. I thought she was alive today for all the stuff that she overcame in her life, especially getting bitten by a cobra as a child.
1: She seemed like an immortal being almost based on all that she could withstand. Mm -hmm. And it is just the most ironic thing that she was gunned down by a jealous I'm not even going to say jealous lover because I didn't see anywhere in print that they had actually even been together. Mm -mm. He, he may have just been someone who was in love with her from just like seeing her be a badass, Mm -hmm. and I get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, wouldn't we all have been Mm -hmm. simping hard for Ava T. Matardo? Shame on that guy. Well, I'm still saying shame on the fortune teller that gave him the tea about who she was dating and where she was located. Because that's a messy bitch. What were you hoping to achieve by doling out that info? Why would you be telling her business like that? Mm -hmm. You didn't like her or something? I bet everybody in the sideshow business was jealous of her because they had to do so much smoke and mirrors for their acts. And she was like the real deal. I'm sure there were like elements to her routine that had illusion involved, there had to be, but like, yeah, the actual snake bites were snake bites. She was getting bit by the poisonous snakes, mm-hmm, and
0: absolutely. she was also
1: having things pushed into her body. And other people couldn't do that without dying, so they were jealous,
0: right? Like she was literally a bona fide miracle.
1: There are some physical explanations from doctors, but she really never got to be studied enough to. Know for sure exactly what was going on there because of that fucking asshole that shot her. So,
0: how did you even come across this story? I don't remember.
1: I've been off and on reading this ghost book called The Witch of Lime Street, it details the era and time when Harry Houdini and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle were besties. Mm-hmm. And running the spiritual scene, there was just a a little excerpt about Avatima somewhere in the early chapters of that book. It was like two paragraphs worth of information about Avatima, but like when I read that, I was like, "Skirt, yeah. I gotta see more about this person." They really like barely gave any information, and like, well, I need a whole book about this woman. Right, I need a whole biopic. Where's the biopic? Y'all are out here rebooting and doing remakes and prequels and sequels to death. I want an Ava Timotardo biopic. Seriously. Make it happen. It's what the people want. It's what the people want, yes.
0: But seriously, guys, if you haven't, Watched or listened to episode 21, The Proof is in the Bunny Rabbit. Go give it another listen. You're going to hear some of it here, but the full video and audio will be in our feed. So go find it if you didn't get a chance to watch it or listen to it the first time around. It was so good. But Santa, I'm curious, which of my stories in 2023 had you the most shook?
1: Well, TBH, this is not only my favorite story of. 2023 this is my favorite story you've ever done and that is your story on the crescent hotel also known as arkansas's hottest fucking club this story took place in episode 16 which was titled arkansas's hottest club and it was called arkansas's hottest club well by us because the crescent hotel Prior to Norman Baker taking it over and running it in the ground um, was actually a really like great spot for the high society um, of Arkansas to go and have galas and parties. It's, it was just a nice like high society place to go. The bubbles were flowing. I'm sure people were probably having lots of orgies. It was just a great time. That no one ever wanted to end. But unfortunately, it came to an end when Norman Baker came to town. And I'm not going to spoil it for you here. I want you to hear all of the crazy shit that Norman Baker did in episode 16, Arkansas's Hottest Club.
0: Located in the Ozark Mountains in Eureka Springs, Arkansas sits the beautiful Crescent Hotel. Despite its remarkable Victorian beauty, the hotel has a troubling past. It's alleged that during construction of the hotel, a stone worker named Michael, who was working on the hotel, he was way up high and he saw a beautiful young lady from this great height and he thought it would be a wonderful idea to lean over and holler at her. Who knows what he said. He may have looked her up and down and said, you got a pretty mouth or... You know, whatever flirtatious saying was popular back then. You could say his little head was doing all the thinking, not the, mm-hmm. not the big head up here. So whoopsie! Uh, while trying to entice this lady, he fell to his death into slash onto room 218. It's unclear because I'm not sure at what point they were in with construction, if it was just... A shallow husk of a room and he fell in it or he came from a balcony fell on top of the roof I don't know but he died he died and that's all I know so that was room 218 yeah. Damn. and we will circle back to Michael don't you worry <laughs> okay so now you might think in theory that uh, saving the hospitality of this hotel only for the wealthiest and most well to do that it's exclusivity would send more people in droves Because, you know, it was basically Arkansas's hottest club. But no, this business model was simply not keeping the lights on as expected. So in 1908, this luxury hotel was used as a woman's conservatory. So basically, it was a seasonal school for the well-to-do young women. It sounded kind of like they were maybe phasing out the invite-only hotel bullshit and then In the off season, they would have the girls come and go to school seasonally, kind of like a semester type thing. So the rumor has it that while the school was in session, one of the students either fell or jumped in a fit of despair from the third floor balcony. And there's some speculation that this woman who jumped or fell to her death may have been pregnant out of wedlock. Between this poor lady and Michael, the stoneworker, you could say that gravity's a real freaking jerk. So then in 1937, a purple-clad fellow named Norman G. Baker enters the chat. Listen to this. What this Norman Baker decided he wanted to do was purchase the hotel, paint it up in his favorite color, purple, and convert it into a hospital. Because after all, this guy, he had the cure for cancer. Can you believe it? This man did not have a medical degree, no medical training, literally nothing. He ain't got nothing. He is simply, he's out. He's simply unqualified. (laughs) You may be wondering, what the fuck was he? If he wasn't a doctor, what was he? Well, I'll tell you. He was a broadcaster, okay? He had a large following, and that's it. Uh, He was basically America's original gangster influencer shilling essential oils. <laughs> that's pretty much what he was. So, <laughs> guess what, Santa. Guess what this Broseph thought was the cure for cancer: drinking your own pee. Ooh, no? that's pretty. Tell gnarly. me if I'm warm. That's pretty gnarly. It's not.
1: <sighs> Tell me if I'm like warm or it cold. Because I kind of like
0: you. Do want to make guesses? It's involved with liquid. Okay, please guess. It's involved with liquid. So you're lukewarm. But I guarantee like, you will not guess what it is.
1: The cure for cancer. Oh, the water from the spring, like the the water, yeah, the the mineral water.
0: That is a great guess and when I learned that that's what Eureka Springs was famous for, I was like, "Oh, this motherfucker right here, he's going to try to bamboozle us with some healing you know, Eureka Spring water. He ought to have like done Dasani, that. but no. I'm going to tell you what he thought was, <laughs> or rather what he told people was the cure for cancer. Are you ready for this? Get ready. Buckle yeah. up. Ground up watermelon seeds, brown corn silk, red clover, some water, mint, and carbolic acid in a vial, in a concoction. Okay, a tincture.
1: I see where he's going with it, but
0: that's quite a claim to make. Yeah. Yeah, all I got to say is, what in the fresh hell is this MLM snake oil bullshit because I'm not a doctor. I didn't go to medical school. I certainly don't have the cure for cancer, but I'm pretty sure... That watermelon seeds have nothing to do with it, yeah, so I mean, that's like so bizarre to me. water cr- crushed up watermelon seeds. What was your initial thought when I said that this was was a concoction? How would you how would you preferably like to take something like this?
1: Well, I would assume it's being distributed by mouth. Is he sticking it up people's asses?
0: Yeah, um. <laughs> About that, Norman Baker made millions, allegedly, off of these sick people. And over 40 people died at the hospital in his care. Because guess what? This concoction that he made to cure people was injected directly into their tumors up to seven times a day.
1: He was inflaming them. That was That's very... In- He was literally like inflaming them by doing that fuck. And he was taking money
0: for this. He was literally, he, yeah, he literally had this big ass sign on the, on the hotel slash hospital that said cancer curable. And he had literature out there that said cure for cancer guaranteed. You can't, you can't do that. Yeah, it's really fucked up. And yeah, so back to the story. Um, So prior to his Crescent Hotel bullshit, Norman was traveling as a mentalist where he did mind reading shows in vaudeville, and he only got by with this with his strikingly beautiful eyes and charisma. Dude was a bullshit artist, but karma's a bitch. Norman Baker was eventually arrested and imprisoned for fraud charges. He died in September of 1958 in his yacht in Miami, Florida. So it sounds like he didn't have an actual physical piece of property. A yacht is pretty bougie, don't get me wrong. But the point is he died, and you're not going to believe this, but um, he died of cirrhosis of the liver that had been aggravated by cancer yeah yeah how's that so that's irony yeah so the hotel turned hospital obviously had a change of ownership after all that and it of course turned back into the hotel that it was always intended to be and in 2019 like hardly any years ago it was I feel like 2019 was yesterday, but at this point, is it 2023? What day is it? I don't know. For whatever reason, some people at the hotel decided that they had to excavate the property behind the hotel, and what they unearthed was completely jaw-dropping. Like, what? It's giving American Horror Story Season 1 because buried underneath the soil were dozens of jars containing tumors and other body parts submerged in formaldehyde or whatever was most convenient for him to soak it in. You know, who knows? I doubt it was real formaldehyde. However, they were still slightly still preserved. So first and foremost, this man did not believe in surgery on living people, but he had no problem cutting someone up after they had already passed on and he would carve out the cancer in their body and whatever body parts may be attached. And he would put these parts into jars and preserve them. And over the course of the year, somehow they had gotten buried. And even still, in 2023, if you visit the hotel, the morgue is down below inside the hotel and lined along the back wall of the morgue, are actual jars of these specimens and on the property where they started carving all the earth out they have like a it looks like a glass enclosure kind of separating it so that people don't fall in not fall in um and it has some of the jars sticking out
1: so you can like if you stay in the hotel you can like just go down there
0: yeah so they offer ghost tours and things like that um, oh okay uh, room 412 where there was a woman named Theodora and they call room 412 Theodora's room. She allegedly was a nurse turned patient. She worked for him and then she got sick herself and when she died um, she stayed in the hotel and people say that she's kind of a neat freak and she can I don't know if it's just her being passive aggressive at times but apparently if she doesn't like someone she'll mess with them in ways like if they leave the room she'll stack your suitcases up along the door so you can't get back in or for the neat freak aspect of her sometimes if you leave things scattered around the bed or whatever she'll organize them from biggest to smallest or what have you to make it kind of be in order so she's kind of very particular in that way there's at least four or five different ghosts in that hotel some of which they didn't have much of a backstory, but would you go with me to the Crescent Hotel? Yeah, that sounds cool.
1: I would like to go there. It's not that far. I mean, it is, but it's not, it's like in our region at least. So
0: yeah, mm, it's, would, um, it's in the Ozark mountains. It's Northwest Arkansas.
1: Yeah. I would love to go like this year if possible. like that'd be cool. I'd love to go anywhere this year, but that place sounds really cool, especially with like the morgue feature and like the ghost tour
0: feature. Oh my gosh, I would die. Okay, I'm so glad that you liked this episode. That was one of my most proud episodes I've ever done. I will say, from y'all's point of view, you may not have noticed, but we did have some tech issues during that episode. I remember there was a lag uh, mm. when we recorded that one. But yeah, people like him deserve a special place in hell just for them and I feel really I feel really bad for all of the lives that were lost at his negligence and at his shilling basically I said he was shilling essential oils that's essentially what it was Mm -hmm. it was essentially essential oils (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. and not the good kind not the ones that actually work Um, I equated what he did to several groups that exist that I will not name because I don't want to get sued, that prey on innocent people and their absolute desperation to find a cure, to find an answer, to find relief, to find whatever it is they're looking for. Because those people that he preyed upon were so desperate and he did them so dirty.
1: To find out that he was injecting it directly into their tumors, that upset me so much because that is just so agitating Mm -hmm. that had to have been so agitating to an already like inflamed thing that was happening in their body god knows that could have caused infection i'm sure it did i'm sure it caused infection gangrenous reactions Mm -hmm. like he would have been a lot safer and a lot less liable i feel like if he had just been giving them some fucking water Cause he could have, he could have sold them the moon on some just water and not like injected anything in anybody. He'd just been like, here's some water and this will probably, this is probably going to do the trick. Yeah. Cause if you're just giving somebody some spring water, it's like, well, I tried, <laughs> I tried yeah. something. But then if you're injecting stuff directly in the tumor, it's like, you mean harm. Exactly. You mean harm and you're doing harm. And I didn't like that. And also, I was very, very upset to find out about the specimen jars and even more upset to find out that some of them are still in the basement today, allegedly. You can go to the Crescent Hotel and tour the basement if you want to, if you want to do a little ghost tour down there. Which, I do want to do that, but, like, I fear that if I see the specimen jars, I am going to throw up on the spot. And they cannot get mad at me if I do that, because they have specimen jars on display. Even in movies, when I see specimen jars that are obviously, like, a special effect and not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just so gross. Yeah.
0: Did you have to dissect any animals in high school? like a mink or something.
1: Um, only in middle school I had to dissect a frog, and that's the only thing I've ever dissected.
0: And it was awful, wasn't it? The smell of formaldehyde. It smelled
1: it smelled so bad. It was really gross.
0: Yeah. I still can smell the formaldehyde from oh god, so many years ago, like that's what I think it's the sickening. jars Yeah, that's what I think the jars probably smell like. It's disgusting. I hate
1: it. Yeah. I hate it. And and I hate him and I hope he's having a great time in hell currently, right now.
0: He deserves yeah. it. Whatever he got. Whatever punishment he got, he deserved it.
1: He's probably having watermelon seeds injected up his asshole like every five minutes. If I had to I guess.
0: So. I feel like that would be the epitome of karma. That'd be that would be perfect.
1: <laughs> I feel like that's for sure what's what's going on. And I'm at peace with that, so
0: yeah yeah well I'm I'm glad you liked that one thank y'all uh I did I gotta I gotta ask you though what your favorite story that you did was
1: so this was not my absolute favorite I'm gonna be honest with you guys my favorite story that I did was definitely the Playboy Mansion story But I'm going to spare you guys having to go through that again, because that was a very, very, very long story. I really like held y'all hostage for that. So just to like mix things up a little bit, too, and go out of the realm of ghosts. My second favorite story that I did of 2023 was the story that I did about the Alaska Triangle which was like my first time doing something in the realm of aliens, potentially. Because really up until that point, I had only done ghosts because, you know, that's my lane. But I enjoyed learning about the Alaska Triangle and all of the different disappearances that have happened. There's been so many. Disappearances in the Alaska Triangle Usually it's plain Disappearances but there's been just like People going missing In general in the Alaska Triangle never to be seen again And then of course there's people that go missing And then are seen again like way Later Mm -hmm. with like No recollection of what happened Type stuff and If you want to hear More about some Disappearances in the Alaska Triangle Then Keep listening, because I'm going to roll the tape. So, Hunty, have you ever heard of the Alaska Triangle?
0: <gasps> yes! Oh, my God. Was this on Discovery Plus? Because I watched, like, two of the episodes. Um, Yes, Hunty. I will go ahead and tell you
1: my main source for this story is a show on Discovery Plus called The Alaska Triangle, and particularly episode one because I did not know anything about the Alaska triangle until I started watching that. And I was like, Oh my God. So I'm going to be watching more episodes and shit. I might come in a future episode and talk about some other things that have happened in the triangle. But this, in this episode, I'm mainly focusing on some like plane disappearances and plane crashes and things of that nature. So the Alaska triangle is very similar to the Bermuda triangle which we have heard most famously of Amelia Earhart disappearing in uh, many years ago. The Alaska Triangle is an area of wilderness that connects Anchorage in the south, Juneau in the southeast panhandle, and Barrow, which is a small town in the north coast, forming a triangular area of land. So this land that exists inside of this triangle is mainly just like vast wilderness, snowy mountain peaks and things like that. The Alaska Triangle has actually had more disappearances than the Bermuda Triangle. What? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah I didn't know that either. More than 2,000 airplanes have crashed or disappeared in the last 20 years. I don't like that. I don't like it. But the, the main plane disappearance that I'm going to be talking about here is... It's known as the Missing Douglas, which was a C-54 plane that went missing on January 26, 1950. And this was a military transport plane. So on January 26, 1950, this plane went missing two hours into its flight. This was supposed to be an eight-hour flight from the Elmdorf Military Air Base to Montana. So the plane was carrying 36 passengers and eight crew members, so 44 people total were on this plane. The last known contact with this plane from the air traffic control people was in a town called Snag, Alaska.
0: Is this all landlocked this whole flight pattern? Was it supposed to go over water at any point? I don't think so. I don't think this particular
1: one was. There's another disappearance that happened or there were not another disappearance, but there was another crash that happened that was actually more on like the Pacific area of it. It's possible that it could have been over that water area where they actually disappeared, but, Mm -hmm. but they were last heard of in Snag, Alaska, which is a landlocked area. And so a little bit about the Elmendorf Military Air Base, that is in Anchorage, Alaska, and that was built to protect the northern edge of the U.S. from Russia because Anchorage, Alaska is about 56 miles from Russia, technically. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, and back then it was the Soviet Union. Yeah. So there was a lot of conflict between Russia and the U.S. and a lot of competition uh, Mm -hmm. in regards to nuclear weapons and things like that. And just so you know, the disappearance of this plane in 1950, that was the same year that the U.S. was about to have its first functioning hydrogen bomb, too. Which I'm sure Russia probably had some kind of intel on the fact that they were working on that. Yeah. When the Douglas was officially considered missing, 7,000 ground troops and 85 air troops were deployed to search for them. They were searching really hard because it was 44 people, you know, that was a lot of people on one plane. And actually, um, one of the search and rescue planes that was looking for them crashed in the southern part of the Alaska Triangle. No one died. The pilot ended up walking 13 miles to the the nearest highway to get help, and then everyone was rescued, thank goodness. Oh, my God. that happened while they were trying to search for for the other plane. And then on February 7th, which was over a week after the disappearance of the Douglas, a C-47 crashed. In the southern part of the search grid. And no fatalities happened in that one either. And it was never disclosed how or why that plane crashed either. We don't know if they were trying to just withhold that info or anything. But it's just, mm-hmm. they crashed. A week later, a third search plane crashed near Snag, where the Douglas was last heard from. So it seems like this area is, ugh, there's something going on in that area. Yeah. Because it's like... Somebody does not want these planes in the air in that area. (laughs) And then a fourth plane crashed, but this one was a B-36, which is a nuclear bomber. And it was out on a simulation exercise. This plane lost all power while flying back into the Alaska triangle from the Pacific. So they did go over water, but they weren't over water when they crashed. They had gotten successfully back into the triangle um, and their
0: power went out.
1: Yeah, lost, lost all power, and then they crashed into Mount Colugate. Oh my god! In British Columbia, which is part of Canada.
0: Yeah. No. Oh my god! New fear unlocked. Holy shit. Yeah. And the nuclear bomb that
1: was on board was lost and never found. Oh whoa so, whoa
0: whoa 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 whoa! It was carrying a nuclear weapon. And it's gone? Yeah. And what universe does a plane crash a plane that has a bomb on it? Yeah. And it doesn't detonate? What? It, that's pretty crazy.
1: Yeah. Because they were out on a simulation exercise for, you know, what would we do in the event of having oh to use this God. bomb? Holy shit. It, you know, that's pretty crazy. It's like, it's. I think everybody survived except the bomb. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God. (laughs) So there was another plane disappearance that has never been explained to. In October 1972, a plane carrying the leader of the House of Representatives, Hale Boggs, and some other members of government disappeared along the southern edge of the Alaska Triangle. And it disappeared into the ether, just like the Douglas, and was never found. So, oh my God. Yeah. So we've got, we've got, Planes disappearing. We've got planes crashing all over the place. Things just going missing. And there are three theories as to why this could be happening. Well, four, technically. One is Russia involvement. That's like the first logical explanation is Russia having some kind of greater technology at the time to be able to interfere. That's the first theory. Second theory is the electromagnetic anomalies that just happen in that area that could have manipulated the navigation instruments that -hmm. were used by the pilots causing them to veer off course and on the show the Alaska Triangle there was a man I forgot his name off the top of my head but he's a he's a very experienced pilot and he was showing how electromagnetic frequencies can affect a compass Mm -hmm. and can make it just kind of start going all crazy directions and if you're in midair and you have a compass going crazy directions or other navigation instruments kind of switching your route up, it can have you veering into a mountain for all you know. You know what I mean? Seriously. It can have you nosediving into the ocean. You never know. So that's one thing is the electromagnetic frequencies that are just different up in that area in Alaska. And then of course, there's the theories of UFOs being involved, yep. and there's this group called MUFON, mm-hmm. a Mutual UFO Network, and they have some theories about how the UFOs could be involved in this. So, they've actually received a lot of different reports over the years of UFO sightings in the area. So, in 2003, there was a reported sighting of a mass of UFOs about 200 miles from Fairbanks, Alaska. And then in 1986, the crew of a Japanese airline allegedly saw two UFOs trailing their plane in the middle of the Alaska Triangle. And then February 10th, 1950, only a week, almost two weeks after the Douglas went missing, a top secret intelligence report reveals that UFOs were stalking US naval planes days before the Douglas vanished. So that report came out on the 10th, but this happened days before the Douglas vanished. UFOs stalking the naval planes. Oh the my first god. Encounter, I know. It's like it's like tea upon tea.
0: I'm um, scalding in this tea.
1: <laughs> so much tea. The first encounter was above the naval station of Kodiak. 250 miles southwest of the Douglas Departure Point in Anchorage, which was Elmendorf Air Base. Mm -hmm. In that encounter, a Navy pilot witnessed a UFO going 1,800 miles per hour on his radar. At the time, there were no known aircrafts that could go that fast.
0: Excuse me?
1: Yeah. What the fuck? Imagine being up in the air and vulnerable and, like, there's something chasing after you and you're just alone up there seriously hoping that the air traffic control people can hear you as you're like trying to communicate what you're seeing
0: right and that rate of speed like that's way too many miles per hour what the hell that's a bit too much mph (laughs) so
1: so the ufo that the navy pilot saw suddenly vanished and reappeared two hours later trailing the Navy plane again. It followed for a few minutes and then vanished again. And so this Kodiak encounter happened four days before the Douglas disappearance, by the way. That's the actual number, four days. This top secret naval report was so important at the time that 36 copies were sent to various security agencies like the FBI, CIA, Air Force Intelligence, and the Department of State. Mm -hmm. People were like... This is, a, this is a security issue. Yeah. This report about the Kodiak UFO encounter never saw the light of day, though, until the 1970s, when a Freedom of Information request forced the release of a redacted version of the report. It was sent to all these intelligence agencies, but was actually kept under yeah. lock and key. Two days after the Douglas disappearance was another UFO sighting, this time above Elmendorf where the Douglas had originally departed from. An Elmendorf commander spotted three orange objects above the airbase, and they hovered at about 2,500 feet and then vanished.
0: I'm just going to tell you, I don't like any of this. If this is, I don't know. like we say aliens come get, come and get me, but like, maybe don't. Yeah, at least not while I'm up in the air myself. Don't be yeah, chasing me. don't come me. for me like that. We're not playing hide and seek in these airwaves. no. <laughs> I'm
1: not intelligent enough for y'all to want anything with me like that. You know what I mean? That's
0: incorrect, but I get what you mean. No, but it's like, I'm not the one you want. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not (laughs) the one. You would do like a hair flip like, me? (laughs) Moi? Oh my God. It'd be very Moira Rose moment. Yeah, it would. It actually would. You want to see me? (laughs) Alexis.
1: (laughs) (laughs) David. (laughs) <laughs> so the lieutenant colonel filed an unidentified flying object report after that. Some think that the Douglas may have actually been taken by a UFO, like the plane itself taken. And the logic behind that is the use of a tractor beam, which is a super strong energy beam that can pull anything into its orbit. Oh my like, God, no. It. It's like a grappling hook, basically. And that one, I mean, that one's kind of extreme, but it's also like scientifically could be. It's a valid theory. It is theorized that the Douglas C-54 was overpowered by superior technology, like a tractor beam, and that's why it has never been found. So in October 1978 in Australia, Frederick Valentich, a pilot, took off in his plane, and then described an unidentified object above him at about a 1,000 feet, moving really fast. He saw a green light and a metallic shiny appearance on the outside of the unidentified object. Hmm. A few minutes later, Frederick says to the air traffic controllers, that strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. It is hovering, and it is not an aircraft. Then, the last thing heard was clashing metal, and then... The signal was lost. He disappeared, never to be seen again. Oh and it's theorized my God. that a UFO attached itself to his plane somehow and like pulled it off into the ether, or used a tractor beam, as the other theory states. Wow. So a few weeks after the Douglas disappeared in Alaska, there were possible signs that the plane might still be out there somewhere. On February first and second in nineteen fifty. There were faint radio signals heard containing people talking, but they couldn't make out what they were saying. And they were signals from the plane. The radio wow. messages came through for days after the Douglas disappearance, but gradually became more distant until they stopped getting them. The, the last theory as to what could have happened to the Douglas is that it flew into a portal, which is a gateway to another dimension created by electromagnetic forces And in this theory, the radio signals would be sounds coming from another dimension. And the theory suggests that the portal is powered by the electromagnetic frequencies of the Alaska Triangle, which kind of goes back to earlier talking about the electromagnetic anomalies that exist there that could have just caused him to crash. But beyond that, it could have actually just created a portal.
0: All of these options suck. I'm so scared right now.
1: (gasps) Whether it's Russia, whether it's electromagnetic frequencies fucking with your navigation instruments, whether it's UFOs, aliens, manipulating your shit or attaching itself to you and dragging you off into the ether, or whether it's the electromagnetic frequencies creating a portal or a vortex that you would end up going through and entering a new dimension. Any of those options are pretty shitty.
0: I mean Russia adult.
1: one is actually the most scary one to me, <laughs> because if all of this was Russia this whole time, imagine what they're capable oh of doing now. If they were that advanced then to be able to manipulate all of these crashes and disappearances and orchestrate all of that, they, uh. the power they hold. same with UFOs if and aliens, if if that if it was UFOs or aliens, it's like, wow, they've just been like watching in the wings, waiting. Waiting to come and get me. Yeah. They're going to take us up on the request. I'm still saying, come on, though. (laughs) Come on and get me. (laughs) They don't want nothing with me to hurt me. And hey, maybe even some of these people that they've disappeared or brought into their dimension or whatever, like maybe those people didn't actually even get harmed. Like maybe they're thriving.
0: Like if they went to a different parallel dimension via a portal... What are they doing? Are they in, Are they living their best life? Did they become aliens? Did they go to heaven? Did they go to hell? They go to heck? Like, where are they? I need answers. What if they actually came back at some point, but
1: never aged and just had to like start over with new ideas? Wait, did you see that show
0: on Netflix about that?
1: Manifest.
0: Yes. If it's a manifest yeah, situation, just then... like
1: manifest. Ah. <gasps> yeah that's crazy that makes me kind of want to watch that show I, I only watched the first episode once and i was like oh this is interesting but i just never literally on, like
0: the exact same here i didn't finish it i watched one or two i wasn't and I was that like, into oh. it
1: but i now i kind of want to watch it because i want to see what their theory is as to like why that really happened right um, And if
0: it lines up with these theories. But yeah, that's my story. I loved that story. I know it wasn't your favorite favorite, but I loved it specifically because it was your first deviation away from ghosts and the like.
1: I know there were a lot of different theories as to what could be the reason for the disappearances or what could be the reason for the phenomena of the Alaska Triangle. I would love to know what y'all think. Let us know in the comments. In t ways, I don't have much else to say about this story because, like I said, it's not my number one favorite, but it's my second favorite.
0: I know you said this wasn't your favorite favorite, but I personally loved that you went out on a limb and took on this topic because this is one that has always fascinated me, just the Alaska Triangle in general. But, like, you had so many funny jokes in there. <laughs> you said... Uh, it's a bit too much MPH, too much MPH. And I thought that was so funny because like ever since you said that, whenever we, you and I are in a stressful situation, we're like, it's too much MPH. <laughs> <laughs> I just love it. And like, it was so ironic to me that I was going on and on at the beginning about how much I love Yellow Jackets. And that show is literally about a plane crash.
1: Yeah. And you didn't that know crazy. that I was going to do the Alaska Triangle either at that point. No. I don't think. Yeah, no that was a that was a synchronicity if I ever saw one.
0: It really was synchronicities
1: and in the studio.
0: And I think that was the time when your mom and stepdad Richard came up and gave you that giant big screen TV so yeah. you could watch Yellow Jackets. <laughs> Did
1: My you home watch theater. It? No. <laughs>
0: I say give it another chance because it's a bit of a slow burn. I mean, the show in general is a slow burn. But if you haven't even met Elijah Wood yet, you've got some treats around the corner and also some tricks.
1: I might. I I probably will at some point revisit Yellow Jackets on my mom's Showtime account,
0: probably, (laughs) (laughs) most likely. No, I loved that story, Santa, and I can't wait for part two.
1: Oh, yes, because when I was researching this story i discovered the show on discovery plus that i guess like i was probably the last one to discover on discovery plus because it's a show that's been running for a long time called the alaska triangle there's like 50 seasons and so i know that there's a lot more tea that i don't even know yet and so catch me at some point in 2024 probably revisiting the alaska Triangle. So. If you want to check out this episode in full to hear more about the Alaska Triangle as well as Amanda's story that week, check out episode 20, We Love a First-Hand Account. You know why it was called We Love a First-Hand Account? Because Amanda's story that week was a firsthand account about a ghostly experience that she had in Savannah, Georgia. Mm. And you're not going to want to miss that. Anyways, enough about me. Which of your stories from 2023 had you the most shook?
0: Okay, so similarly to you, and it's funny that you mentioned my first-hand account, the one I'm about to say is also my second favorite because my first favorite was from episode 20, We Love a First-Hand Account. That's where I talked about the Sorrel Weed House, and we included some raw footage of what I think may have been a shadow person on the premises during a ghost tour that I was on. Um, One of the most chilling experiences I've ever had on a ghost tour, at least Um, the story that I'm going to highlight this time as my secondary favorite has to be episode 24, literal flying saucers. It's also the episode where Santa covered Alma fielding. The title for that episode couldn't have been, more organic, it was perfect. But basically in episode 24, Literal Flying Saucers, I covered a very emotional tale about a man, an author named Whitley Strieber, who had suffered through multiple alien abductions and the awful, awful stuff that happened to him aboard the spaceship. Like, you know, probes for days, lack of consent all over the place. Like, he was just tortured and I'll be honest like his his testimony is to me very gripping but also just so sad um, this episode is also the one where I reveal that we got Bowie our puppy and he just turned a year old happy birthday Bowie Um so yeah this one has a special place in my heart so with that said roll this tape roll the tape roll it stop drop and roll it the story that had me shook this week is about one of the most chilling stories of alien abduction in u.s history and that story is the alien abduction of the horror author whitley Strieber. what yes and santa after this one i i don't think we're going to be asking the aliens to come and get us anymore Oh, God. All right, here we go. Whitley Strieber, a New York Times best-selling author of his autobiography titled Communion, as well as other nonfiction and fiction horror novels, is an alien abduction survivor. Whitley Strieber spent Christmas time 1985 in a secluded cabin in upstate New York with his beloved wife, Anne, and his then seven-year-old son. What started as a holiday getaway from the hustle and bustle of Manhattan ended in pure terror for Whitley Schrieber. And I quote, They are here is the beginning of the transcription of Whitley's alien abduction hypno session, wherein Whitley recalls in vivid detail the extraordinarily traumatizing events that occurred that night. With that said, Please consider this a blanket trigger warning for what's to come. Disturbing contents ahead, including, but not limited to, mentions of rape and bodily harm. As Whitley recalls what happened to him on that quiet, snowy evening, he continues in this hypnotized state, saying, quote, I hear him. He comes right in the door. He's wearing a face mask with two eye holes. He stands beside my bed and makes a gesture towards the door. And there's a hell of a lot of them. I'm scared as hell, just screaming and screaming. Whitley goes on to explain that, after he notices that there are several aliens in his home, that he suddenly finds himself outstretched in the cold on his back porch. He's lying on this caught bed-like situation, simply frozen in fear. And before he can even register this, he is suddenly in the middle of a clearing in the woods, still strapped to this cot or whatever it is. If suddenly finding yourself in the middle of a freezing cold snow-covered field isn't terrifying enough, well, then he recalls that very abruptly, suddenly he's in the air and he's blazing through the clouds into an unfamiliar room. And... (laughs) This is actually probably my only opportunity for some comedic relief in the whole story. So I'm just going to go with it. (laughs) He describes this mysterious room as smelling like cheese. So this is where I have some real questions. Okay. What kind of cheese does it smell like? Because there's Mm, a significant mm, difference. mm, (laughs) mm, There's a significant difference in funk between something like Gouda or Havarti as opposed to Gorgonzola, for example. My least fave. Um, If it smells like Gorgonzola or, heaven forbid, blue cheese, that right there would be enough for me to want to end it all. And the reason I say that I would end it all is because, like, in that point, not only have you clearly been abducted by aliens, no questions asked, but you also have the misfortune of having your nostrils assaulted by Mm -hmm. stinky stinky cheese. Yeah, no, thanks. In two ways. So Whitley continues in this hypno-regression. He says, and I quote, It smells kind of shitty in here, to tell you the truth. It's not clean here. So at this point in the story, what I need to know is... Are the aliens like coming to invade us because they need cleaning products or do they not know what basic hygiene is? Why does it smell so bad in the spaceship? Like, why does it smell so bad in the spaceship? I digress. Mind you, while all of this is going on, throughout his screaming and all the commotion of this abduction, his wife, Anne, who was right next to him in the bed, is sound asleep. Sound asleep. How? I don't know. Suddenly, what Whitley presumed to be a female gray alien with big black eyes approaches him. For some reason, Whitley thought that it would be socially acceptable to ask her at some point something along the lines of, are you old? He asked this alien lady if she's old, and I'm like, bruh, that is very rude. But anyways, she says, yeah, I'm old. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, same. But on a serious note. This is when things start to escalate even more. The lady alien approaches Whitley and says, We are going to do an operation on your brain. Whitley, trapped on this exam table, exclaims that he is not giving her consent to operate on him. I don't consent. (laughs) He yells, You have absolutely no right! And the lady alien retorts, We do have a right. I mean, honestly, the audacity of this intergalactic bitch. I can't even deal. Whitley, obviously at this point, is praying that this is a nightmare. He's pleading with himself and looking for any sign that this isn't real. And so he asks the alien, can I smell you? And she wraps her hands around his head. And uh, guess what? She smells like cinnamon. After he has gotten a good whiff of her, her long fingers pry open this box. And inside this box, a long needle is unveiled for the quote-unquote surgery. Whitley pleads with the alien, and he says, and this breaks my heart, you're going to ruin a beautiful mind. And then, without further ado, she sticks the needle in the side of Whitley's head. Whitley describes that at this point there is no physical pain, however, the needle does make a quote-unquote disgusting cracking sound as it enters his skull. And this is where it kind of just keeps getting worse and worse. Okay, again with the trigger warning, you have five seconds to get out of here, because this is going to get graphic. The alien then rectally rapes Whitley with a probe. Whitley describes this action as the alien, and I quote, punching it in and feeling a sudden coldness overtake his body. So, so, so messed up. Anyways, so the next morning, Whitley wakes up with only bits and pieces, just fragments, vague memory of this trauma. And all he can really remember is seeing these big black eyes, and he tells his wife I, th- I think an owl got in here during the night, which I don't know if you remember the movie The Fourth Kind, but when it came out, I think in like 2009-ish, at the time, to me, that movie was terrifying, and they do use owls as the, the main alien situation, and it's very frightening, hmm. and so I thought it was interesting that he mentioned that, and I do wonder now... Because they say the fourth kind is based on true events. I wonder now if Whitley's description from his book, Communion, where he talks about these aliens, I wonder if the owl description is what inspired the owls and the fourth kind. Hmm. It could be just a common thing. I'm not sure. What, um, year,
1: what year was this uh, from again?
0: Yes. Yeah, so the abduction happened in 1985. Uh, okay. A day after Christmas, technically the 27th in the wee hours of the morning. And he wrote Communion also in the 80s, de- depicting this I've heard of thing. that book being, like, recommended. I didn't know the context of it. Yeah, and- so on the cover, there's an alien with big black eyes. And that's, from what I heard on some podcasts and read about, apparently that was one of the major influences for how people describe aliens going forward that's like the the poster child if you will of what an alien is so that that book when he wrote it 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 popped off and he he got I'll get to it but he was very successful with that book so he tells his wife I think an owl got in here during the night and later more memories start to flood back in he realizes that it hurts his rectum when he sits down for extended periods of time and then he also notices that there is a red mark on the side of his head where he remembered the needle going through despite these memories coming back in pieces at this point he is he's experiencing a growing certainty that this in fact was an abduction and he keeps it to himself he doesn't tell a soul not even his wife And obviously he kept that from her because he didn't want her to think that he was having some sort of episode or that he was crazy or yada yada. But anyway, yeah, so he's really concerned about this rectal pain and he goes to see a doctor. The doctor, at first, suggests that he may have hemorrhoids, but that's before realizing that there's an actual injury. There is a lesion in his rectum. So just
1: a question about the probe Mm -hmm. um was it like obviously they didn't prep him for that Mm -mm. um and so it was shoved in there um was it like shoved in and out or was it just shoved in the once do we know that was
0: that was hard for me to decipher um because it was described as it being punched in so I don't I don't know if it was repeated or not based on what I read and watched, um, but with like that Like, either said, way, very invasive, but... Oh, God, yeah. Like, terri- terrifying.
1: I'm just kind of thinking, like, depending on which one it is would explain the intent more. Like, if it was just the once, right. then it's like, oh, they're getting information. And then if it's the in and out, it's like, oh, they're hurting him on purpose just to hurt him.
0: Well, one thing I actually did not put in my notes, but I just recalled from a a podcast interview that Whitley did. Apparently the aliens, I don't know if they did this to him or if he heard of other people doing it just from the context. I'm not sure, but he said that they have something that can stimulate the vagus nerve, which is responsible for all kinds of functions in your body. It's literally your gut feeling. And it does have a role in arousal also. And apparently when they use this device, whatever it may be, it can cause an involuntary erection. So I do think that with that being known, I think there is sexual intent involved. But only from the standpoint of, like, using that to obtain an erection or whatever to get a sperm sample, for example. Yeah. This anal probe, if I had to guess, I don't think it was sexual in nature because he did only have the one lesion. And I would imagine that if a probe was... This is, sorry, guys, this is so graphic. If, if it were a repeated action, that you would have a little bit more of a problem than a single lesion. It would be potentially lethal. If... if you know yeah. what I mean? Especially, like, with no preparation... For that. Right. So upon discovering this lesion, the doctor looks to Whitley and says simply, you've been raped. You know you've been raped, right? And understandably, when the doctor says this to Whitley, he is completely overwhelmed. He feels like he's going to get sick. And furthermore, this is really sad, but also kind of sweet. Whitley says that he does not want his wife to have to be with someone with this level of trauma. And I think between the two fears of either having actually been abducted by aliens or having some sort of psychotic break, having hallucinations, some sort of mental break, either one of those options is terrifying and equally upsetting. And I can't imagine holding a secret like that from Connelly. Like if something were, like that were to happen to me, like, or not being able to tell you or any of my good friends, like keeping that to yourself, that's got to be so draining over time. And whatever the case may be, he he did not want to put Anne, his wife, through any hardship. And so Whitley even considered offering her a divorce to spare any turmoil. He kind of was of the mindset of, I'm damaged goods, i'm I'm paraphrasing but kind of along the lines of i'm damaged goods why would anybody want to deal with someone like me who's going through this that's just crazy first and foremost who's going to believe me anyway if i do decide that i believe i was abducted and raped by aliens so over time he grows more and more certain that he was abducted by aliens I should note, though, that the doctor did some tests on Whitley, and apparently everything came back negative. So, with that portion, I don't really know what to think. But ultimately, Whitley can't take it anymore, and he does confide in a friend. He he brings it up to his friend named Timothy, tells him all about the abduction, and Timothy then encourages Whitley to finally tell Anne. He's like, you cannot keep this from her. You have to tell her. And so... Timothy encourages Whitley to finally tell Anne, and when when Whitley approached Anne to tell her his experience, she braced herself for the worst. She thought that he was going to ask for a divorce. Instead, he says, no, I've been abducted by aliens. And Anne, sweet bean, she said something along the lines of, oh, thank God I don't have to get a divorce. Like, that's love right there. That's a ride or die. I think it's wholesome because she believes him right off the bat, essentially. So that's love. So going forward, let's see. Like I mentioned, Whitley has this uh, hypnoregression session. Um, The doctor's name is Donald Klein. This hypnosis interview occurred on March 1st, 1986, just a couple months after his uh, abduction. So, along with what I had transcribed earlier, in this hypno regression session, Whitley continues, he's screaming over and over, and he shouts, What the fuck is it doing to me? But here's the kicker. Remember, I told you this incident happened December of 1985. What Whitley is remembering here in this part of the regression is not from the Christmas time abduction. This occurred at the same cabin two months earlier, October 1985. What the fuck? So yeah, this is where he discovers the Christmas incident was not his first rodeo, and he had apparently suppressed memories prior to this. Whitley then recalls that he was with Anne and his friends Jacques and Annie at this cabin that October evening, and in the middle of the night, through this regression, he recalls the cabin suddenly in the middle of the night fills with a bright light, and then suddenly it's dark. As the darkness appears, there is a shadow of a figure that appears to be standing and donning a hood, staring at him from his doorway. It's giving afrua. <laughs> it's just standing there. so uh, sorry Whitley if you're listening this is not funny we just we laugh to cope we laugh so we don't cry Whitley further describes that the alien seems to be holding something that is causing this strange electrical sensation when it's gestured towards him it's unclear but I'm imagining something that like a baton or something Mm -hmm. it's just being like hail married in his direction and I don't know if this is the same electrical device that can stimulate the vagus nerve and cause erections and all that creepy stuff. But as this happens, or rather after this happens, the aliens then telepathically show Whitley imagery of both the past and the future. And these visions that he has, Whitley sees, this is so sad, he sees his son die and then he sees what he thinks may have been the fiery end of the world. He mentions depictions of explosions and fire and just devastation. Then he relives, in this regression, the death of his father who passed way too soon, I believe, of a stroke or a heart attack. It was a heart attack, I think. And it's so heartbreaking to listen to Whitley recall this because Whitley, I think, originally is from Texas or at least spent part of his life in Texas before moving to New York. And in this regression, you kind of hear his Texas accent come out. And he's saying things like, oh, daddy, you lived a hard life. It's just like, it's just, it's so sad. And he's just reliving the moment his father passed away. And I just, I hate that for him. That's so sad. But that October night, this is what's crazy. At the time, his friends, Jacques and Annie, did not remember anything. They didn't remember anything at the time. Neither did he, neither did his wife. So after recovering this memory from the regression, he asks, Whitley asks Jacques and Annie to go into a hypnosis regression, completely blind, no context clues. Hey, would you be willing to speak with my therapist, basically? And surprisingly, Jacques and Annie agree to this request. And again, they had no idea what the doctor was going to ask them. Both Jacques and Annie get hypnotized and regress back to that October night. And guess what? They recall a very similar experience. The bright lights, the footsteps, all of it. I believe it was Jacques that said something along the lines of, Oh, shoot, I thought I slept in until 12. That's so rude of me to do because this light was so bright that it looked like it was daytime outside. It was that bright. And so then he, you know, fumbles through his bed and, he, and the light goes out and he's like okay good it's not it's it's not late morning i can go back to sleep so he goes back to sleep and he did not remember this until this regression so i don't know how you explain that so after this whitley publishes his new york times bestseller communion the nonfiction novel is about his extraterrestrial experiences and after whitley was interviewed by larry king thousands of letters come in explaining that they too had very similar experiences And these letters, uh, fun fact, are apparently now archived at Rice University. Um, At least they were at the time of filming of one of these documentaries. After these two experiences with the aliens, they're still not done with Whitley. Um, The aliens come for his son. Allegedly, the aliens do abduct his son. He is not harmed, but Whitley witnesses some pretty crazy stuff. Suddenly, his child's back in his bed, and I don't think his kid ever remembered it. And then later, Whitley is part of a mass-reported UFO sighting in New York, similar to the Phoenix lights that I covered in episode one. Um, There is video imagery of what looks like lights in a V formation hovering in the sky, and um, lots of people saw this New York sighting as well. Then again, at the cabin, it gets worse. The aliens come back and they push Whitley's head into his pillow, leaving him scared half to death and unable to move. The next day, Whitley feels a lump in his ear, which happens to be a bit bloody. Whitley goes to the doctor and lo and behold, you ready for this? There is a mysterious implant moving inside his ear. In his ear, there is... An implant that when the doctor cuts it open, it seems to evade his utensils to pull it out. And at this point, Whitley didn't announce himself who he was, but eventually I think the doctor puts two and two together and he's like, oh shit, this is the communion dude who got abducted by aliens multiple times. I'm not fucking with this. Like, this is an alien implant. Bye. And so he sews him back up. Whitley, last I heard, still has this implant. Maybe he got it removed. but it's fucking crazy so ultimately the doctor is unable to remove this and here's the kicker about this implant whenever whitley puts a walkie-talkie up to his ear it gives off signal (laughs) like radio interference signal what in the actual hell okay so that's wild Whitley would later become blacklisted from certain publishers that he had worked with in the past. Um, His two horror books that popped off, um, one was called The Wolfen, and I'm blanking on the other one off the top of my head, but he was kind of like a horror sci-fi-esque fiction writer. And he went from that to writing a true, they say true autobiographical book about all of these encounters. And that book is the one that popped off. Here's where the story gets really sad. Devastatingly, Whitley's sweet wife, Anne, who refused to leave his side, his wife who believed in him, passes away. When? Uh, I want to say it was 2014 or 2015, so semi-recently. 2014 feels like yesterday. (laughs) It's so long ago, though. But it's literally almost a decade ago. uh, Ugh. what is time anyway, so Whitley he believes that Anne is still with him and that she takes the form of a white moth when she wants to remind him that her spirit lives on, and the reason he believes that is because he saw this white moth after her passing in the dead of winter. uh what moth is flapping its wings trying to get? your attention in the dead of winter. It's too cold out there. Ain't nobody got time for that. And additionally, he thinks that this is her because there was a poem that was very close to her heart that she had shared with him. And when he saw this moth at first, he was like, what is going on? It's wintertime. And then he thought, the poem, it's Anne. And I think it's so sweet that he takes comfort in knowing that she's still with him. Whether it's the moth or not, doesn't matter. To me, she's with him no matter what. Like I mentioned, he got blacklisted. So he was struggling financially there for a hot second. I mean, haven't we all been there at some point or another? He has yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're out of money. Please support Patreon. Um, <laughs> Please. Please. We were trying to make content. Anyways, so because he's in financial strain – he has to leave his cabin behind, the cabin where he experienced all of these encounters. So he has to move out of state. I want to say he goes back to Texas, and then later he finds himself in California. And he's, I think, a little upset that the cabin is gone, but also there's got to be that double-edged sword of utter relief that he never has to go back there again. Except for later he does go back just to say goodbye one last time, Um, and some crazy stuff happens with that. But if you're interested in learning more about Whitley Strieber, he does have a podcast called Dreamland that you can check out. Uh, my sources for this episode are the following: a Shock Doc documentary titled "The Visitors," Dreamland podcast by Whitley Strieber, Communion by Whitley Strieber, and Edge of Reality Radio with Lee Spiegel. That's that's Whitley Strieber, and I personally. I cannot refute this implant. I think I think he's telling the truth. I've
1: been wanting to watch that shock Doc by the way. Like that's one that like every time I'm on Discovery Plus, I'm always like, I'm going to watch that later. And I just haven't. But also, I feel like when I was a kid, I saw something about him like a long time ago and I don't remember like all the tea, but I feel like yeah. he I feel like he was a part of a documentary I saw about people that had the implants. Cause, and I don't remember what the documentary was, but it was like several different people who had implant experiences.
0: Yeah. No, I would not be surprised if you have seen him around or heard of him before because his book, like I said, that was the poster child for what an alien looks like. And he was on Larry King and that was a huge deal. And, he sold so many copies and so many people had similar experiences. And even in the shock doc documentary, I didn't put attention on this intentionally in the episode because it was about Whitley, but throughout the documentary, they interview some of the people that wrote him letters or later reached out and said, this happened to me. And yeah, I understand that mental illness is a thing. You can have hallucinations. You can live in an altered state of mind. I understand that. But that does not explain the lesion in his rectum. It does not explain the implant in his ear that apparently had some sort of intelligence behind it that it was evading capture from this doctor. I just can't explain it. And I, I'm i going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think it's true. Like anybody who claims that they've been abducted by aliens. Anybody who said aliens come and get me and then they did. People are always going to clap back and say, you're a faker. But I I don't think Whitley's one of them.
1: I can see one of the reasons why he may have been blacklisted in the book community. Because he started out as a fiction writer of that genre. And then put out a non book in that genre. On the surface, it's giving creative writing. You know what I mean? Yes. On the surface, that's like anyone who doesn't know and anyone who hasn't heard about the hypno regression therapy that he did and
0: stuff like that.
1: Like they might be like, yeah, well, he's a writer.
0: (laughs) You nailed it on the head. The main objection to his story is exactly what you just said. People question his credibility and his authenticity because he was a writer. And some people had the opinion that it was a cash grab. But I I personally would not put myself through that level of emotional torture and turmoil for a few bucks. You know, so I, I'm going to give this one the benefit of the doubt. Um, His case is widely covered and he appears on several podcasts. So Whitley, if you're listening and you would like to come on sometime, come on.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. We would love to have a firsthand account, Whitley. Yes. Because <laughs> we love a firsthand account.
0: Yes, we do. And that would be pretty iconic, actually. Come on. So that was my second favorite story. Whitley Streber's account of alien abductions. I hope you all enjoyed it as well. My heart goes out to Whitley for everything that he experienced as I said and you know what else was cool about that episode, Santa? I think this was the episode where you talked about how you got to go see Taylor Swift. You know I'm not a Swiftie, but Santa's a Swiftie. Do you want to reminisce about that at all?
1: I do. I believe I do. Yeah. That was like probably one of the coolest things I got to do because one thing about me I don't usually ever get to really go places and like do cool stuff but when I found out that the Ares tour was happening I was like I have to go to that one way or another I'm going <laughs> and it just worked out really well that I was able to get an extra ticket that one of my coworkers had already purchased for someone else that ended up not being able to go so I was able to buy that ticket for actually really cheap so I didn't have Mm -hmm. to do any like last minute like thousands of dollars for floor seats or sitting in the pit I mean we were in the nosebleeds don't get it twisted (sighs) but it was really really fun
0: honestly Santa I think this is a really good segue okay y'all we promised we had an exciting update And here it is. Drumroll, please. The update is that Santa and I will be going to the Oregon Ghost Conference March 22nd through the 24th in Seaside, Oregon. It is the 12th annual Oregon Ghost Conference. This is our... First time that we will ever Have a booth together we will Have another announcement to make But after the Oregon Ghost conference passes but I just wanted To thank Rocky the creator of this Convention for having us on It's going to be so much fun I think there's like 60 something vendors we're going to be in a large group with lots of very cool spooky people just like us and we can't wait to meet you guys and if you live in the pacific northwest and would like to meet us please come by like i said it's march 22nd through the 24th in seaside oregon and i want to say it's at a convention center and off the top of my head i don't have it but i'll make sure that everybody gets the details but i've never been so excited and nervous in my life.
1: I'm so excited. And I haven't even gone to look like, have they posted like any kind of itinerary of like workshops and stuff that are happening or like lectures or anything cool? Cause I want to definitely partake in some of that.
0: As of this recording, I don't think the tickets are up for sale yet, but I do know that they will be $20 and that will give you access to lots of speakers. Um, I remember seeing he posted something about Um, the deadline for submitting contracts for the people who were going to speak at the event. Um, I do know that there will be, I know that there will be an area kind of like where we'll be, where people can just go through the booths, socialize, purchase Mm -hmm. merch, do whatever. Um, We will have friendship bracelets. We hope to have some clothing options at the booth as well um, and some other goodies, but that'll be a surprise. But um, (laughs) I did go ahead and tell Katya that we were doing this, I I spoiled it for her because she lives in the state, and I was like, "Yeah, you have to come, you have to come, so she can and have so, time to prepare." Yeah, so yeah, so that kind of happened very suddenly, and so I just want to say thanks to everybody who was patient with us and gave us an extra week to breathe because we've had like technical difficulties, like my computer's being a jerk, and then also planning for this convention on the fly Mm -hmm. I don't I do not have enough hours in the day to accomplish all the things I want to do and I know you feel the same way like Santa's out here working like she's out here so it would mean a lot to us if you guys could come if you live in the area or are open to traveling if not don't worry we've got More news to share, but that will be at a later time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah,
1: there'll be other opportunities. And of course, while we're there, we're gonna be keeping everybody updated on the tea of what's going on. So, if you don't get to make it, don't have the FOMO too hard because we're gonna try to like keep everybody informed on all that's going on and anything Mm -hmm. cool that we get to do, any cool people we get to meet. I'm really excited.
0: But yeah, guys, that is our show, I guess. Thank you for your patience last week when we weren't able to put anything out for you guys. We hope that you enjoyed this recap. And if you live locally to Seaside, Oregon, or if you have the means to travel there, we would love to meet you in March. But until then, I guess, stay shook and stay tuned. Thank you so much for tuning into Shook. New episodes of Shook drop every other Wednesday on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you love to listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information on today's episode, please check out our show notes. And until next time, stay shook.
1: Do you have a personal paranormal encounter you'd like to share with us? If so, visit our website, shookpodcast.com, and fill out our contact form, or send us an email at shookparanormalpod at gmail.com.
0: And one last thing, friends. Shook is a 100% independently produced podcast. So please consider supporting our show by either leaving a review or contributing to our Patreon page. You can find that at patreon.com slash podcast.